Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Hi there. I am so happy to be back with you again today, and I am so happy to welcome Lauren of Must Love Herbs to the podcast today. Lauren is just utterly delightful. Um, Everything about her, everything that she brings to the table is so charming. And uh, Lauren is actually going to speak to something today that I don't really discuss enough in this podcast. So while um, the storied recipe welcomes guests from around the globe and um, with experiences all around the world. One thing that I don't talk about actually a lot is how different uh, subcultures within the U.S. are. Sometimes it can be amazing actually that we are even one country at all. And one of the subcultures in the U.S. that I don't know very much about is Appalachian culture, or as Lauren will teach me to say, Appalachian culture. (laughs) So Appalachian culture has its own music, uh, definitely accent, its own food ways, heritage, culture, values, all of that. And Lauren is an amazing ambassador of Appalachian culture. So Lauren of Must Love Herbs has amassed a huge following on social media because she is routinely treating us to joyful, bright, sun-drenched, photos and videos that share her knowledge of gardening and herbalism. This is ancestral knowledge that comes from her Appalachian family. And she also shares just unbelievably adorable cakes that are very skillfully decorated with super cute, but also lifelike mushrooms. She makes focaccia breads that are just elaborately decorated with these cheerful floral scenes. And like I said, she is really an ambassador for the Appalachian region. Her family has lived on Appalachian land for over 200 years. And Lauren is very humble about everything that she knows and shares. She says it all comes from um, this heritage. So if you, like me, uh, are approaching this conversation and this episode with kind of only a vague understanding of this subculture, Lauren is definitely the person to give you a deeper appreciation of this people group, their history and their ways. This is a cliche, but I just have to say it's it's an apt cliche for Lauren. She is truly like a ray of sunshine, and I just feel so happy and honored to introduce her to you right now. Real quickly, first, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast right there in your player. If you don't listen to podcasts in a player and you happen to have stumbled upon this episode on my website, that's fine. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter right where you are on the website. Just scroll down to where it says get recipe and episode updates every Friday. Just click that link and then yeah, every week you'll get uh, a new episode and a new recipe delivered to your inbox. Otherwise, subscribe in your player. Please share with your friends and families. And I always appreciate five-star ratings and reviews. That is it. That's the end of my plug. Thank you all so much. And now, this time for real, now here is Lauren. Well, 
I have to tell you, I always, um, I always watch stories muted because there's usually people in the room with me. So I haven't heard your voice yet. And I was so excited to get on, <laughs> to get on here and hear your just warm, lovely accent. It does not disappoint. It's beautiful. Well, well, thank you. I actually don't talk on my stories very often. So anytime that you hear me, you can hear my dog in the background. <laughs> she, she's she's grunting because I'm moving. Aww. But anytime um, somebody can hear me, like when I actually do decide to talk, they're mm. like, oh, I love your accent. And I'm like, it makes me want to cringe. <laughs> oh, does it really? Does it? And I love, I love um, Appalachian dialect and accents. And I love my mom's voice. And everybody says that our voice is identical. But my voice, I do not enjoy at all. Well, you know, that's interesting. And maybe as a tip, when I send you the draft for the episode, just don't listen back because <laughs> I, I, um, when I first started doing the podcast, I was amazed. I mean, Honestly, I think probably the first dozen people I interviewed, when I sent them the draft, they would respond and say, I hate my voice. And I thought oh, that, God. isn't that interesting? I think people yes. just don't like the sound. I mean, it's like when you take a selfie and you go, that is not what I look like. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That, and I think that's the same with recordings, too. I don't think mm -hmm. that they get the full depth. The same with pictures. You just, I know from being a photographer, you don't get that you know, things, some things that are just really not very pretty. Yeah. You take a picture of them and I'm like, wow, that photographed well. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I, and, and people, especially because um, I don't know if you know this, but I was a wedding photographer for almost, yeah. uh, yes, nine years before I switched over to this. So I, I do know how to flatter people and images, but I will tell you one thing I learned for absolute sure is that there is, I mean, there's like a Venn diagram. There's mm -hmm. beauty or attractiveness, and then there's photogenic mm -hmm. and the overlap is not what you might think. No, um, it's, it's not. It's not what you might think at all. So <laughs> I think it's the same for people's voices. And um, especially, I will say, people who have spoken English for a while, but maybe um, immigrated to the U.S. or it wasn't their first language, especially I get a lot of feedback from them that they they couldn't believe um, how pronounced their accent sounds when they oh, listen back. Yes. And I have um, a lot of weird little things that I say in mm -hmm. the way that I pronounce things. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, Lauren, that's not how you say that. But oh. it's my dialect. So I'm embracing it because yes. we practice a lot mm. and like we went to Ireland mm -hmm. we've been quite a few times and you'll go and people will say oh my gosh just keep speaking and I'm like well I can't now <laughs> but you know they really like it and I'm like I love an Irish accent I love an English accent you know mm -hmm. yes it's just what you have well I love your accent and it is I was, ex I genuinely mean this. I was excited to hear it. And since we're doing an episode focusing on Appalachia, um, you know, of course I need to hear your accent. I'm sorry. I don't know why these email notifications are coming in so loud. Oh, I can't hear them at oh, all. Can't? Oh, good. Okay. I'll try to you do better to ignore them. You may hear a little grunty puppy here and there. She's, she's <laughs> like that. You move, she goes, eh. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that will just add again to the charm. And I've closed up my email, so we shouldn't get any more notifications from there anyways. Um, so also, I, I know you shared with me, are you comfortable if I call you by your name in this? Yes. Yes, yes. that's fine. I actually had I had hid my name for a long time and had yeah. just been herbs or whatever but Mm. it's not really practical Mm -hmm. you know when you do magazines or you do interviews or anything like that I'm just gonna have to get used to sharing my name Mm. are you just by nature a private person very very private Mm. Mm. and now you have this huge platform (laughs) (laughs) it takes away from that (laughs) but it's okay I'm embracing it I'm, I'm getting used to it oh well Yes. I mean, you're an easy person to love on social media. So I don't think it's going to, I don't think your audience is going to diminish anytime soon. That's for sure. Well, thank you so much. Yes. Yes. So um, before, before we jump in, I need to tell you a funny story and just, and just lay some things out in the beginning for listeners, because last night my husband and I were driving home together. We go visit, um, his his aunt every other Monday evening. And it's such a special time. And so we were driving home and he was just kind of like, you know, what's on tap for you the next couple of days? And I said, oh, I have a few interviews tomorrow. I'm speaking with someone, you know, from Appalachia. <laughs> He's right here in Maryland. He was mm-hmm. like, Appalachia, what's that? And I said, <laughs> you know, like the Appalachian mountains. And he goes, well, what is it? And I said, you know, it's like a region and a culture. And he's like, a culture, what, what are you talking about? What is the region? And of course I'm trying to sound so confident. Like I know <laughs> the more he asked I me, mean, you guys aren't far off. <laughs> the more he's asking, I was like, you know, uh, you know, um, country roads, take me home. You know, <laughs> I'm just like, I'm just like throwing, it's like a free association moment, you know, I'm just kind of throwing out words and stuff like that. So we're going to get to the culture. I hope, you know, really in depth, but in terms of the region itself, mm-hmm. just for anyone listening, is it any kind of um, surrounding any area surrounding the Appalachian mountains, or is it more limited than that? Yes, it's, it's any, an Appalachian is somebody who lives in the Appalachian mountain range area. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if you're not exactly in the mountains, as long as you are within a vicinity of it, mm. you're considered Appalachian. Mm. And some people claim it that are, you know, like an hour out from the mountains. Mm. Some people don't. So, Do you claim them? <laughs> Do you claim those people? <laughs> And yeah. I'm I'm saying it wrong. I'm saying Appalachia, but you're saying Appalachia. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Appalachia. That is our. Um, I'm sorry to say this, but that's our telltale as to whether you mm. are Appalachian or not. If you oh. call it Appalachia, you're not from the region. Oh, <laughs> I've been outed. <laughs> um. So, and then also, this. Is, tell me if I'm wrong. This is a massive mountain range, doesn't it? Go from Maine to Georgia. Oh yeah, it goes, it's huge, huge. And it actually, I didn't know this until recently, but before the continent split, it was in Ireland. <laughs> really? So it's this huge mountain range. And I, I feel like that's part of why I feel so connected to, to Ireland and to Scotland. And I think why those people settled here, it looks like home. Mm. It just, you know, they have the same sort of features and everything like that. But 
Yeah, there's it's it's huge. It's a huge region, but I live in central Appalachia. So mm-hmm. it is like the heart of Appalachia. Mm-hmm. And the center would be kind of um, West Virginia, West Kentucky. Virginia. Yes, Virginia, that sort of area. Mm-hmm. And Tennessee, okay. Tennessee, North okay. Carolina. <laughs> yeah, okay. That kind of area. Okay. And then the culture, though, if you're kind of in the foothills of these mountains, the culture is similar, even though, you know, I clearly the culture in Maine and the culture in Georgia are massively different. We're talking about, you know, um, a very, uh, I wouldn't even call Maine a North. Well, Maine's Maine's all to itself. (laughs) So maybe one of the more Northeast states, and then you have like a Southern, Southern state, but Mm -hmm the culture within those foothills um, or within the mountains itself are all common across such a big geographic region. There are a lot of similarities that run true throughout Appalachia. There really are. But now there is difference. You've got the more Southern Appalachians, you've got Mm -hmm. the more Central Appalachians and you've got the more Northern Appalachians and your food ways are going to be somewhat different because Mm -hmm. what you have available to you in that area. Mm -hmm. And the climate and what can grow. And, you know, some places have more area for livestock. Mm. Like our area, we don't have as much flatland. So Mm -hmm. you're not going to see as many cows and stuff. And a lot of our food will have more pork in it because Mm. pigs don't take up as much room as a cow would take up. So those are the kind of thing, pigs and chickens and stuff like that. It, it's what makes its way into your dishes. Mm, of course, of course. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Well, this and is... The, more, mm, go ahead. <laughs> more, you know, more down south, you've got a lot... You have more room for cows. So you mm-hmm. have more beef in in your recipes. And some of that goes for up north too. Like mm. in Pennsylvania and areas like that, there's more flat land. Mm. Okay, okay. And then though it, that's food related in terms of... Um, Music, again, the dialect, um, mm-hmm. values, all mm-hmm. of those things, they're those, more similar. Of, yes, yes, mm. a lot of similarities. Have you heard of bluegrass music? Of course, yes. That's, a, that's sort of folky mm-hmm. vibe, mm. kind of right. Mm, it plucks right at your heartstrings. Yes. Mm. It's funny because my dad is a musician. Yes, and. He's a musician from this area. He's always lived here. He does not like bluegrass. He doesn't. <laughs> it's, the, it's the oddest thing to me because I love it. Oh, really? What does he play? He is more not rock, but mm. uh, maybe more soft rock mm. would be what I would say. Okay. He's Yeah, he's definitely more towards that end than towards country. Mm. And is he a singer? Does he play an instrument? What does he? He sings. He plays wow. every instrument he's ever picked up. He can play it. I have no idea how. Wow. He is right. like a child prodigy. He sat down at a piano at the age of three and played my old Kentucky home. Wow. And nobody knows how he learned it, how he did it, but he's never stopped playing since. That's amazing. It's, it's, it's wow. a little inspiring to me who can't play an instrument oh <laughs> I she's tried very hard I don't believe that at all <laughs> I don't I could believe probably that play a triangle <laughs> <laughs> well yeah you have some rhythm at least well if we can return um to the food waste for a second mm-hmm. 
obviously gardening um, and being resourceful in that way is a huge part of your culture. It's a huge part of your life um, and what you share. So tell me what's growing in your garden right now. <laughs> you might, you probably wouldn't even be able to list them all. It's okay if you just give a sampling. Oh goodness. I had a whole list. <laughs> go go ahead and read it. We have a lot of gardening enthusiasts that listen to this podcast. So what I have growing, I have multiple varieties of tomatoes because mm. you can never have too many tomatoes. Amen. Cucumbers, multiple mm. varieties of them. My favorite is market more. I'm just going to plug the market more. They're okay. so delicious. Multiple bean varieties. They're heirlooms out of Tennessee that I'm growing. Mm. Summer squash. So, you know, zucchini and yellow crickneck squashes. Yes. Peppers. Brussels sprouts. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm, they're purple Brussels sprouts. Oh, I'm so excited about them. They are beautiful. Oh, I can't wait to see those on your feed. And oh. I thought Brussels sprouts were a colder, a colder weather, but I'm just wrong, wrong, wrong. You start them in the cold weather, oh. but they do. Yeah, they grow all out throughout the summer. You have to start them early. They take a really long time to grow. I'm okay. surprised. And Big Mac's pumpkins. So these are like the kind that you see in the state fair. Oh, yes. I'm very excited. I'm not going to let them get that big because how on earth would I move them? So how how big would they get? <laughs> oh, they can get like 500 pounds <gasps> or more. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yes, okay. Like huge. have to have a forklift. I probably have to have like a special forklift to move them. Mm. Yeah, and I don't have that. So we're mm. we're just gonna let them get like a hundred pounds. <laughs> oh, just a hundred. <laughs> just a hundred. Then I've got winter squash. So mm. they're they're like the blue pumpkins. Mm. Are kind of Cinderella style. Yes. I never knew that those were called they're called purple squash. Uh, they're, they're winter Win- squash. Winter squash. I winter did not squash. know that's what they're called. Okay. And they're Dishes and soups, and they keep really good. That's why they're called winter squash. So they keep throughout the. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They just started showing up in stores around here maybe three or four years ago. I had really never seen them before that. Okay. They're so beautiful. Oh, yes, they are. Yes, they are. Corn. Doing Mm -hmm. corn. Okay. And that is, that is like Appalachian to its core. Like Mm. that. Everybody has to do corn. That's very important. Okay. Just one variety or many? I'm doing one variety because I didn't have enough room to separate them mm. and because they, they're wind pollinated. Oh. So I have two varieties that you'll get a hybrid and it's usually not very good. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So my corn is a, it's called a wild violet mm. and a sweet corn, but it's not too sweet. Mm. And it has white kernels and purple corn kernels. Oh, how beautiful. And it's got really, really good reviews and we'll see. I'm not, I don't normally grow things that are odd. So I've grown purple Brussels sprouts, which I've Mm -hmm. never done before and purple corn. Mm, Yes. You have a color theme. (laughs) These are are my wild items. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And then we have onions. Many, many onions. Lots and lots of onions, and the bunnies have been enjoying the onions. They have eaten the tops off of them, so I've had to pull a bunch of them. Mm, mm. I never knew bunnies would eat onions. So this I, is- 
I, I wouldn't have guessed that. No. No. And then we have, you know, we have two gardens. So we have the big garden and mm-hmm. that's on my, my family land that my family has been on for 200 years. Mm-hmm. And then I have my tea garden that is right outside of my kitchen window. Mm. And it has more varieties than I can name. It's it's lots of culinary herbs, but the majority of it is medicinal plants. Mm-hmm. So they'll be dried and saved and labeled in jars and used for whatever, you know, ails me or anybody else around me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay, I have lots of um I have lots of follow-up questions on this. Okay. First of all, just to picture it is amazing. And if anyone is listening right now, if you're listening on your phone, you really should go to Lauren's website or her Instagram feed. Both are must love herbs and just see this for yourself because, um, you know, just the cheerfulness, the brightness, the sunshininess of everything that you harvest and the photos that you take, it matches your voice. It matches your personality and people can just get this. I like, it just feels sun drenched, all of it, all of it, everything about you and what you put out just feels sun drenched, you know? Um, so while we talk about it, I do think people should go look if they have a chance right now. Um, so my first question is, you harvest, in, in, at least from my outside perspective, way more than you could eat at one time. So do you, yeah. So do you can and then and preserve and eat? I mean, is does this feed you for the majority of the year or is this more of a hobby garden? It supplements. Um, mm. We could live off of it and I mean we could if we mm-hmm. really tried mm-hmm. to because we have enough area that we could grow for the family mm-hmm. we wouldn't have meats and things like that mm-hmm. but we would have our vegetables mm-hmm. um I can and I freeze mm-hmm. and I dry a lot of the stuff and if there is so much of an abundance that I feel like you know it, it happens with cucumbers you're mm-hmm. only going to eat so many pickles. <laughs> you can't have a hundred jars of pickles. Right. Although my, my kids might, they do love pickles. We'll get a huge jar from Costco and they're gone in a day. Well, now see you, you would benefit from my <laughs> hundred pickles every other day. that I harvest. <laughs> Yes. Now the squash and zucchini, I could not keep up with because try as I might, I cannot develop a taste for it. I cannot. I love it. Mm. But again, it's one of those things. It, it pickles good, Mm. but I better as a quick pickle. So you're looking at a two month shelf life on that. So my favorite thing to do with squash is to freeze it and then have it for casseroles and have it for stir fries and like sheet pan dinners and stuff all winter long. Mm. So Mm. that's, that's what I do with the squash. But I mean, my deep freezer has turned into a squash freezer. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) You can do that's actually my worst nightmare a freezer full of squash oh, squash <laughs> I've given all the neighbors I've given all my family it's just so um, much squash. that's wonderful mm. so so you don't you do eat it throughout the year but you supplement with other food but most of your vegetables come 
from your own garden. Yes. Yeah. We love our vegetables and we can grow in our climate. If you have a high tunnel Mm. or you have a greenhouse, or even if you have a light winter, things like cold vegetables like lettuce and cabbages Mm -hmm. and kohlrabi and kale and things like that, they'll grow all year long. Well, they won't grow in the summer, but they'll grow all winter long. Right, right. Go and have, you know, like a something to keep the frost off over top of them. And you just go out and pick them. Yeah. And so you have that kind of stuff and you don't have to go to the the store for things like that. And you know, that gets expensive yes. when you're buying big old bunches of kale and big old bunches of lettuce and stuff when you can just grow it. It's right. Well, yes. And it gets especially expensive and shamefully wasteful when you kind of anticipate using it, but mm-hmm. you don't. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something yeah. that's really common. Um, and it's something that's happened to me for sure. And that's different than just before dinner or in the morning, you go out and pick exactly what you know you're going to use right then, wash it and eat yeah. it. And you you leave the rest and it's there if you need it. And if not, it just continues to grow. Mm. Yeah. So the other question I want to ask about your garden, but I'm going to save it for just a moment. I want to ask about the, this is so fascinating to me when I, um, when I look at your the information that you share, is there seems to be a lot of ancestral wisdom that you possess when it comes to these herbs that you grow in your tea garden. Um, but before I ask about that, let me let me lead into it because I, I have a suspicion where some of it comes from. But you talk about with your garden that your grandfather he gave you kind of this great honor when you were six years old that you were the one that he would um, he handed you a pair of tweezers and a seed packet and he started to teach you about gardening so tell us more about him and how much time did you spend with him what did he do why were you given this honor <laughs> and then we'll go we'll go from from there I can still remember that very distinctly because he handed me the tweezers and I thought <clears throat> sorry my voice is gonna um I thought, oh my gosh, he's going to let me do this. <laughs> he wow. didn't let me do that. Mm. And he trusted me at six. And I mean, even at six, I knew I was young. But I think it was because I took an interest in it. Mm-hmm. Nobody else really, my mom likes to garden, mm-hmm. but not vegetable garden. She's more of a flower gardener. And, mm-hmm. you know, for the aesthetics of it all, not so much for supplementing your diet and things like that. But I mean, she enjoys it. She just doesn't enjoy doing it. (laughs) It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And she is a hard worker, but Mm -hmm. she doesn't enjoy it. That Mm -hmm. kind of work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, he, I think he saw that there was that interest there and he wanted to grow it just like everything else he wants to grow. Mm -hmm. And so he, he always answered my questions in the garden. Anytime I had what were probably silly questions Mm. he would answer and answer in depth and he was slow and he was easy when he would answer and he's always been that way he's still Mm. that way there are things that I go to do and I'm like okay I don't know what to do can you tell me Mm. and he'll give multiple answers and then he'll be like but you can do it how you want that's how you learn you Mm. know Mm. He's just always been like that. He's a very soft, he's soft and gentle with me. Mm. I wouldn't say that he was a soft and gentle man. Oh, granddaughters um, have a way of bringing that out of 
the men, don't they? <laughs> yeah, they do. And I, what I know is my my grandfather as Big Daddy, and what you know, his children know, mm. are different. You know, they've we've we've had a different man. Mm-hmm. You know, the, his seasons of his life, and I'm thankful mm-hmm. that I got the one that I did. Mm-hmm. Now, did you? You said you've been on this land for 200 years. Did you mm-hmm. live with him? How large is the parcel of land? Is it kind of like everybody had their own house and you'd see each other occasionally, or were you on top of each other? How was that? The land originally was bought. Well, the land that we're actually on was bought about 120 years ago, mm-hmm. but the family has been in the vicinity of that area for that long, mm. but it was Melvana was her name. It was mm. Mal, and she called it and she worked very hard and saved up her money and bought what I guess you would call a hauler. Mm. And it's, it's actually now considered a city street, but it, I mean, it's by no means a city street <laughs> by anybody's standards. It's just in the city. Mm. And it went, it was just like a little cutout in the mountain and it went up and she owned all of it. Now, mm. over time, parts of the land have been sold mm-hmm. and children have gotten parts of the land and then children moved away. And where we're at right now is the last, um, I think it's, two and a half acres Mm -hmm. of it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so that's it's our our land and it's set to my mom is set to inherit it and then me Mm. and um it's we lived like I said um children have owned houses and then sold and such like that I have always lived next to them when I was growing up okay so I spent a lot of time with big daddy because I was literally a hundred steps away from you. <laughs> mm, mm. And my my great grandmother, she lived, it was our house, mm-hmm. then my grandparents' house, it's Mimi and Big Daddy, and then it was my nana and papa's house after that. Wow. So it was just a you know, a row with large yards separating mm. house. Mm, mm. And that's how I lived. And it was ideal for you. Yes, I loved it. I loved our little road. I love walking it. Mm-hmm. It's always been very peaceful and it's lined with honeysuckles. Mm. Just it's it was good memories to have growing up and to have family around you. I I know some people don't want family around them, but I'm very thankful that I had it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is difficult. You know, family mm-hmm. has has issues, but so do mm-hmm. neighbors that you don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. 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 This is all true. I grew up next door to my grandparents and my younger brother lives two houses down. My older brother's, you know, around, around the corner for city, you know, and mm-hmm. kids are here all the time. And like you said, um, there's something about the dynamics that are difficult when you carry them from childhood all the way through to adulthood, you know, when you don't yeah. get to know someone uh, just as an adult. There, there can be complications there, but it's also a very, very rich thing that I'm thankful for. Yeah, and it's it helps a lot. It helps with raising children. It mm-hmm. helps, you know, you're struggling. You have mm-hmm. family that can help you. And if you don't have that family, you've got to struggle alone. And mm-hmm. I think that's a big part of Appalachia. They don't let you struggle alone. You're mm-hmm. always very close to family or to 
people that you consider family. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that helps a lot. Mm. Yeah. So that, that does lead into a question, which is, you know, big daddy, like to me, that is that if I'm, if I would go back into the car last night and do this like free association <laughs> with <laughs> Appalachia, I think, you know, calling a grandfather, big daddy or a great grandmother named Hazel, which by the way, what a beautiful name. How, oh, I love that name. Oh, how did these people may, maybe speak to each of them? Um, your grandfather. And then, so was Hazel his mother or was that your another? Yes. Yeah. That was his mother. Yeah. Okay. How did they encapsulate Appalachia? It's Appalachia, right? <laughs> How did they encapsulate Appalachia for you? They are hard workers. Mm. They were, they were hard workers. Big Daddy still is. They are resilient. They were never given anything in their life. They had to work. And I mean, this area is hard. Mm-hmm. It is an unforgiving environment. And they've had to work for everything that they ever had. Mm-hmm. And, you know, life throws you a lot of struggles and they've never been down on their luck. They may do with the land that they were given. Mm-hmm. They may do with the circumstances that they were given. And they did everything they could to make a better life for their family and for the generations that came after them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that it it's affected my life more than I can ever even comprehend what Granny did to better for Big Daddy, what he did to better for my mother, and what my mother did to better for me. Mm-hmm. And it's just constant hard work. Mm-hmm. And resilience and keeping traditions alive Mm -hmm. and teaching things that you know your children are going to need in the future, Mm -hmm. like you were talking about um, generational knowledge. Mm -hmm. So much of what you see on Must Love Herbs Mm -hmm. is because that was handed down to me. And it's not my knowledge that I'm sharing. It's my ancestors' knowledge. Mm. I was amazed when you were talking about your grandfather and how um, gently and deeply he teaches you. I was just thinking <laughs> his knowledge must be so rich also because you have not um, run out of it in 20 or 30 years of him teaching you, right? It's not like you learned everything he had to teach by the time you were 10. <laughs> Lord, no, I'm still learning. I'm still figuring out questions, you know, to ask the right questions, to know mm. things, you know, because you kind of got to, click things out. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. When your great grand, it was your, it was. So now, who was Mo, you said it was Movia? Movabia? How does that? How do you say her name? <laughs> Melvana. 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 Melvana bought yep. the land. Who was she in the family tree? Okay, so Big Daddy is married to Mimi. We're, we're just going to go mm. with their. Big okay. Names. Yep. Go with it. And. That is her grandmother okay. on her side. So w- the land that I live on is not land from Big Daddy's side and Hazel's side. Okay. It is land from my grandmother, my maternal grandmother's side. 
Okay. So you talk about how unforgiving the landscape is and how difficult it is there in the mountains. Why did they choose that land? This is where they came. When they came over, mm-hmm. um, majority of my family is from France and from England. Mm-hmm. When they came over, they were given plots of land to do tobacco farming. Okay. This this general area. And I don't know why they chose this area back mm-hmm. then. I just know that it is very fertile land mm-hmm. and it is beautiful, but it is it, with that comes a lot of, there's a lot of animals. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a lot of flooding. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of bugs mm-hmm. and the winters can be hard because you imagine trying to navigate around in snow with steep inclines. Mm-hmm. And then the summers are humid. Oh, they are mm-hmm. terrible because it's a temperate <laughs> rainforest. So it's rainy, it's hot, it's sticky, mm-hmm. and that's not great for plants. <laughs> yeah, the lushness comes at a price, right? <laughs> it does. And I mean, there are mountain slides. There, There's a lot that comes with living in an area like this, but it's worth it. Mm. Every single bit of it, it is worth it. It's hard, but it's also so rich and so abundant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you said about the animals. Um, I had on a guest last year. He is a very, um, very famous turkey farmer in the UK. Their mm-hmm. turkeys have been shipped to Dubai. They have fed the queen at her Christmas dinner for many years now. And his story is an amazing story of risk and, and success and a family story as well. But they recently opened a um, a farm in the U.S. Mm-hmm. in Virginia, um, uh, probably uh, not too far from Appalachia. And the <laughs> the farmer that he picked, the Virginian farmer that he picked, um, kept telling him, "You know, we need this kind of fence, and we need this kind of security." And he was very skeptical. <laughs> and then, and then they put up security cameras, and they were showing him mountain lions, Mm -hmm. bobcats, and he was floored. He couldn't believe that those animals were prowling around modern day Virginia. And he said, yeah, whatever you need to protect these turkeys. We have bears regularly and we actually, I baked an apple pie and I sat down on the couch with an apple pie and I have a big window very close to our couch. I looked over and there was a bear. I thought it was a dog at first, a huge dog. There was a bear and it put its paw up on the window and it snout to the to the glass. And I guess it wanted some apple pie. No this, this is amazing. <gasps> oh Lord, we're gonna have to put a fence up our back. This is amazing. Did you what did you do? Just wait for it to go away? Did you bang you didn't bang on the window? I wouldn't. What did you do? It startled itself when it put its paw up. It oh. kind of it shook the window a little bit. I'm not, it was very large. This is a very strong window, but oh. I guess it kind of moved it and okay. hit its little nose and it it just turned around and went right back up the hill. And I thought, wow. And come to find out there was another one with it, but it had stayed on the hill. Wow. Lord, mercy. It was, um, 
it was a little invading. (laughs) (laughs) I would say so. Very invasive. Incredible. Wow. That's an amazing story. Wow. Um, So back to, this is where I kind of like led in to get to, you do talk so much about these herbs and their medicinal properties. And um, it's almost dizzying for me when I start to read about it. I kind of it's all so new and there's so much that you share. Um, and it's so removed from my experience of, you know, taking my levothyroxine for my thyroid in the morning and I a couple, <laughs> do you <laughs> a couple ibuprofen and that's that like, that's, this is, this is all new to me. So where did all of that wisdom come from and how many, how many different herbs do you grow and how many things do you actually treat with it? Um, The knowledge, Mm. it's not just came from one source. Mm -hmm. It's my family on my maternal and my paternal side, you know, little bits from each person because, you know, everybody seems to do herbalism. I would call it folk herbalism on here. You know, we're not clinically trained. Yes, it's become a little bit trendy, but I feel like there's a little more um, maybe depth to, you know what, it's probably a bias, but I trust yours more and I can't, we should, let's not delve into that bias right now. (laughs) It's, it's different when you have hundreds of years of family knowledge versus when you just started to learn it. You're not selling anything. No, Lord, no. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think maybe that's no. the key for me. Yeah. And it's, I feel like herbalism is a a private thing. It is a individual thing, especially around here. You know what you need to treat you and to treat your immediate family for their ailments and for things like that, because it goes back to the whole Appalachian survival. Mm-hmm sort of instinct you know we were so far removed from modern medicine and from you know highways anything we had to take care of ourselves Mm -hmm. and the land has so much to take care of us you know in it Mm -hmm. and if you didn't need to know something about diabetes or you didn't need to know something about anxiety because nobody around you had that you're not going to know that much about it you're not going, you know, know every herb that you need for that. And that's why I say I have learned little bits from each person throughout the family because it's such an individualized thing around here. Mm. And I've learned not just from my family, my husband's family. They, you know, they have their own parts that they know that were different from my family's Mm. and then you supplement in between that with you know books and um, learning from people outside of the family there are so many people that that have their own form of herbalism Mm -hmm. so it's just constantly learning from others yeah and you raise a really good point which is that you know like I'll take my family migraines run in my family so Mm -hmm. If we had to, if we had to live off the land, um, someone in my family <laughs> would definitely figure out what herbs help with migraines. Um, yes. But like you said, another family might have um, a genetic propensity towards diabetes, or mm-hmm. even um, it. 
is there a history in Appalachia of dealing with some of the more emotional or psychological issues, like you mentioned anxiety through herbalism? I I don't think, Mm. for my family, anxiety runs in it, but I don't think that it's a prevalent thing anymore Mm. than it is anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm just, the fact that um, a culture would like even think to treat that with um, herbs, I feel like until very, very, very recently, almost all cultures have just dismissed that or not even acknowledged it as a thing. Yeah, they have. And there are so many herbs out there to treat anxiety, to calm you. And they're just readily available. And I've always been the kind of person that feels like nature provides what we need. Mm. And there's all of these things to treat anxiety. It's like nature's saying, here you anxious people, have some herbs. (laughs) (laughs) Acknowledge that you have anxiety and take some herbs. (laughs) Have some catnip. (laughs) Is that what I need to go get some catnip? (laughs) Catnip is very good for it. But I always say you have to do your own research because you never know what kind of, I don't know what kind of medicine, you know, a person's on. What kind of pills that they take or supplements or whatever, you never know when something's going to interact with something else. Mm-hmm. And you, that's why I say herbalism is an individual thing. Mm-hmm. You have to really dive into your constitution mm-hmm. and what you need and what you already take and, and pivot from there. Mm-hmm. 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 And you and do, it, go ahead. I feel like it's, it's hard And this is just my experience because herbalists do it every day and they do it so well, but it's hard to go in and treat somebody and not know a full, you know, you know yourself so well Mm -hmm. and to not be given a complete picture, it's hard to treat. Mm. And maybe this is one of the key differences between herbalism and modern medicine is that in modern medicine, Everything is so compartmentalized. You go to a cardiologist, you go to a pulmonologist, even I I had, this was a very um, illuminating experience for me. I won't go into the details of it, but I had a very, very, very sick child. Um, I I gave birth to him. Um, He had like a less than 50% survival rate. And we were under 12 hours um, after him after giving birth to him, like he had been in my womb and then 12 hours later, they were treating him. He was like, uh, rushed to another hospital with a very high level of care. And they were treating him without asking a single question about my pregnancy, which I had been in the hospital for two months for the pregnancy. And it was like, these were totally separate things that we had had a super traumatic pregnancy. I had been in the hospital for months. I had given birth to him. And then it was like, he was, his own case that in no way (laughs) related to mine. And I just remember thinking, why aren't you asking me about the medications I was on, about the um, speed with which I gave birth, about the risks that they were talking to me about the fetus, like the baby while he was in my womb. You know what I mean? It's like, and this is what we do with every, everything, everything. Yeah. You know, know, it's like breast cancer is separated from our, thyroid, which is separated from our anxiety, which in reality, what you're saying. So so very good. Yeah. But, and I have no problem. Well, 
I, I will say I do have a problem with some aspects of modern medicine, but with my experience of modern medicine, I have been lucky enough to find a very, very good doctor and mm-hmm. he is a completely modern medicine doctor. He's not like an herbalist or anything, mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. but he is a very open-minded individual mm-hmm. and he treats a lot of, he sees specialists and things like that, that you go to, but he also keeps up with it. So he's like the common denominator amongst going to other doctors who don't communicate with each other. Yeah. He's like the point that everything comes back to. Yes. And and I, yes. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> he, the, he's like the checks and balance part of, you know. Yes. Yeah. Whole yeah. He's the umbrella and he kind yeah. of pulls everything together under it. And yes, I want to be clear. Listen, in the end, that hospital saved my son's life. Yes. And, you know, I, I don't want to diminish um, and, and without very, very modern medicine, I would yeah. never have stayed pregnant as long as I did. So I am not anti-modern or Western medicine in any way. I just think, yeah, I mean, there's always, there's always ways to improve and maybe some of these. Communicate better. Mm, exactly. And I feel like that's such a, that's such a hard thing with it, but yes, I'm so thankful for modern medicine. I worry that people think because I, I lean so much on herbs and mm. herbalism that maybe I don't trust mm. that. And I do very mm-hmm. much. So. Yes. <laughs> like you, I want to state that I very, very much am thankful. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful in our area, we have a very good hospital system and healthcare and everything. I'm, I'm thankful for that because, you know, that a hundred years ago, that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why we had to lean on herbs so much. Yeah. 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 I hear you. I hear you loud and clear. I know, I know listeners will as well. Um, I, I have another, um, set of set of questions I want to ask, but before I do just tying up two loose ends, <laughs> um, one you met both related to, um, your great grandmother buying the land one, mm-hmm. you said it was a holler, which I've only heard in Randy Jackson songs. My love is deeper than a holler. <laughs> Yeah. What, what is a holler? Okay. Well, I think that the correct term is hollow, but we don't say that. Okay. <laughs> the fancy version, but it is a it is a road or a a pass between two mountains. Usually, mm. it ends. It's a mountain on both sides, and then there's a mountain behind. So mm. you don't. There's not an a through to, to I it. See. You know, Mm-hmm. The other side, you just end at the head of the holler. I see. Okay. And that's a lot of people live in it because we have big, tall mountains and we have valleys. Mm-hmm. And you, it's not, or it wasn't practical to live on the mountain. It was hard to get up there and hard to get down. So you mm-hmm. lived in the valleys and those were the hollers between the mountains. I see. I see. Yeah. It does all sound so idyllic and nostalgic, but I'm, I'm, I hear what you're saying loud and clear, which is it's also very difficult. Um, it makes me think of our trip to Iceland and some of these um, like remote farms. It was the most beautiful place I've ever been, but you just, you would feel the wind and you'd think, gosh, in winter time, this, yeah. would, this would be no joke. This would be no joke. So my other question, um, and this does, I think, relate back a little bit to the culture of Apple. Apple I'm saying it wrong. Appalachia, right? (laughs) 
and, <laughs> and now I'm convincing my, I'm tricking myself in my brain that the first thing I want to say is wrong. <laughs> so now I'm all confused. Um, but I think this goes back to culture and probably even stereotypes um, as well. So I, I, I think, I think I can say maybe a stereotype is um, maybe one of the crueler words people could use is like backwards or, or behind the times or, or something like that, maybe in relation to some of these communities over the years. But I find it fascinating that 120 years ago, so we're talking like 1800, a woman bought land there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We have strong women throughout our history. Mm-hmm. There, I mean, we have lots of midwives. We have lots mm-hmm. of widows. She was a widow mm-hmm. and she worked. And she, that, that's in this area, mm-hmm. stereotypes and gender norms and the ways that were in the rest of the world weren't here. You survived. Mm. And you survived however you had to survive. And women did not play some sort of a role in a box that you put them in. Mm. Our women were out there with the men, doing exactly what the men did, because that's what had to be done. Okay, sorry, just one note on this conversation. Most of you have figured this out, but my calculations were off by 100 years. So in fact, 1800 was 220 years ago, not 120. So Lauren's grandmother bought the land in 1900. Um, It is true that at the time of my miscalculation in 1800, actually no states in the US allowed women to buy property. However, by 1900, it appears that all states, uh, it appears that laws had been passed in all states allowing women to own property. So I was wrong uh, in my assumptions as I was holding this conversation. Sorry about that miscalculation and sorry for the interruption. And that is something that I think more in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, that time when things got a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. that sort of gender norm thing set in, mm-hmm. but it wasn't that way before. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if that's, that's how it was in other parts of the country or not. I don't, I don't think it was, but we didn't have that sort of women can't do things. Mm-hmm. Because the women had to do things mm-hmm. that was, you know, they weren't stuck in the kitchen do, being just a homemaker. They were out farming the land. I mean, I come from a long line of women farmers mm-hmm. and I have had people message me on my Instagram and say, I find it amazing that you work land, that you farm, that you garden. That's a man's thing. And it seemed like the oddest thing to be said to me. And I was like, is, is this true? Is this something, that, you know, that is of other parts of the world? Do, is this just a man's thing? And I mean, I had a man that taught me, but he was taught by his mother. Right. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm just thinking even in terms of a legal, like a, a, when you talk about the subculture, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure there were a lot of places in the U.S. where women couldn't buy land in 1800. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But that it's definitely wasn't that way around here. I think 
if I'm not positive, the land that my grandfather grew up on, Granny's land was Granny's land. It wasn't Grandpa's land. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. You said she worked. What did she, you mean she worked the land or did she work uh, like a professional job as well? She worked in town. I'm not Mm. sure exactly what she did. She did odds and ends. Mm. So I think she worked for a business, maybe Mm. sort of like secretarial work, things like that, and saved up money. But I don't know the exact. This is amazing. Ops. Yeah, this is amazing. And again, I think just in terms of challenging some of those, because you talk on your blog about how, 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 how so many of those stereotypes are false. And I think that that's a, an amazing example. Um, and then did it go, were you going to say something? That was Tatie. That was my, Tatie. my dog. He barked. Oh, <laughs> hi, Tatie. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, did it go the other way too? So sometimes women just did all the things. Um, so men did the land, women did the land and the cooking and the washing and the t- tending to children. Did it go other the other way as well, where men would come into the kitchen and help cook or men would help tend to the children or so on well, and so forth? Now, my great grandfather, he was a baker. Mm. So uh, he baked and cooked mm-hmm. and cleaned and helped with the children. Mm-hmm. And so, no, there was no like, you know, the women were doing it all and the men were just kind of sitting aside. Mm-hmm. It's that's not normal for how I was raised. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming not normal for how the rest of my family was raised. The men mm-hmm. are right there. But now, Big Daddy, he does not cook. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah, not everybody can do all the things, but what you're saying <laughs> is it wasn't determined that um, you would have these, that there was this very specific set of women work and there was this very specific set of men's work. No, I was not raised that way. My mother was not raised that way. That that was That's not our norm. Mm-hmm. Now, I can't speak for everybody else, mm-hmm. but the way that I was raised and what Appalachia looks like and Appalachian people look like for me, it's, there aren't norms like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very, very interesting and helpful to hear. Um, you said what Appalachia looks like, and I would like to actually really tap into the vision, like how beautiful Appalachia is. And, um, you know, obviously your platform is hugely successful. You're constantly reshared, retweeted your work. And it's not surprising. I mean, the things that you bake are so beautiful and so whimsical. And again, I just, every time I look at your work, I think of this word sun drenched, like it just feels like it's filled with sunshine and it radiates sunshine and it gives you all the wholesomeness and brightness and nourishment, even just visually. That's what your work does that the sun gives, you know? And I'm curious. um, And I also want to say for people listening, if they haven't been introduced to your work, it's, it's not, um, it's, it's rustic in the beautiful sense, but not rustic in the negative sense of, you know, like if I crack my cheesecake, I'll say, oh, it's a little rustic, you know, almost like it's a, a derogatory thing. I mean, these little handmade mushrooms that you create are, they're intricate. I mean, your handiwork is beautiful and it's very, like I said, intricate and skilled. Um, 
So is this your aesthetic that you share? Is this maybe just something personal or do you feel like your aesthetic really channels Appalachia? And do you feel like when people look at your work or try your recipes, they are really truly learning about the larger culture, not just learning about you, Lauren? Does that question make sense? It does. I'm going to, I'm going to try to answer it. Okay. Appalachians are creative. Mm. We're we're a very creative bunch. And my style may not be, I know it's not everybody's style, but I think what I try to showcase is that we are creative, Mm. that we have these wild imaginations. And art has always been woven into our area. We talked about bluegrass music Mm -hmm. and there's lots of folk style painters and wood carvers and quilt makers. I mean, Mm -hmm. people would say that moonshine was an art. Mm. (laughs) Well, I think any craft beer shop, right? That's like exploded in the U.S. Really the same thing, just a little tamer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But our area is so rich and so abundant and mm-hmm. there's so many beautiful things like the little mushrooms that I make I'm inspired by the mushrooms that grow all mm-hmm. around you they're amazing the f- they're grown in my garden because I have such rich lush soil that comes mm-hmm. down from from the hillsides mm-hmm. and it's just using what you have and being inspired by what is around you to make things that are beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try to do. And it's, I mean, I wouldn't say that you look at my work and think, oh yeah, that's definitely from Appalachia. Mm-hmm. You know, that that looks full on Appalachia. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to show people that we have so much to offer. Mm-hmm. And that we we are creative and that we can do so much more than people say that we can. Mm -hmm. And that, that was my biggest thing. It's, you know, you look at things and you're all inspired by something. And I try my hardest to make inspiring things that people are going to be like, where is she from? Mm. What, where is she getting this inspiration from? And I have so much around me. Your aesthetic shows that you're inspired by the beauty of your environment. Yes, it's it's all, everything comes from what is in season, what is around me, what I have seen that I have loved. Mm-hmm. And I try to recreate things how I remember them. You know, mm-hmm. how you and how you remember things. Mm-hmm. Everything feels warm in my mind. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about a memory, it is sun-drenched most mm-hmm. often. And so I try to impart that on anything that I create because I want people to feel that. I want them to feel what my memories feel like. Oh, well, you are very successful in that. You are very successful in imparting that feeling. A hundred percent. Thank you mm. so much. That's it means a lot. Oh, good. You it, it is you're hugely successful in that. So you say most of your memories are sun-drenched. And you know, despite the humidity, despite all the other things, you just you just love 
Appalachia, you get the sense that while you might travel, this is your home for life. That's not a question in your mind. Is that something, you know, it's it's a theme in literature around the world for generations and generations. It's this theme of younger people leaving a harder life and going to a life, you know, in the city, you know, striking out and finding their fortune or something like this. Is this like a common, is it unusual that you want to stay in Appalachia or do you find that that's common among your generation that you grew up with? And then are there people moving in like to Appalachia? That's a whole different question. Save that because I want to ask about if new people can come into the culture, if it's a closed culture. So we'll talk about that in a second. So yeah, is that common or is that um, is that something that's real unique to you? I think that staying here mm. is more common than leaving, mm. but there are still quite a few that do move off. And like I said, there are there are bigger towns. Mm-hmm. I think I said that there's, you know, there's towns more at the foothills of Appalachia. And I mean, they're, they're still in Appalachia. They're very much an Appalachian town, but they're bigger. Mm-hmm. You know, they have more colleges and they have more work opportunities and things like that. And they, they do move there. Mm-hmm. But really when I think about the majority of people my age, they have not moved off. Mm-hmm. There's something, it's, it's kind of like a pool. It just pulls you here and you, a lot of people do move and then they come back. Mm -hmm. Well, and yes, they come back. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, and, and the other thing is like, you're pointing out, we live in such a smaller world now, like transportation and technology and so many things have made it. And a lot of ways, like you can have your cake and eat it too, in ways Mm -hmm. that you couldn't, you know, in generations in the past. Um, What about people coming in? So my grandparents um, grew up and lived here in the DC area. And at one point, um, my this is my maternal grandfather. He uh, his his business opened a plant in somewhere that I think would be considered Appalachia. I won't say where. <laughs> and um, they just felt my grandmother just felt if you had not been there for generations, you could never really. She they moved they moved very shortly afterwards. They moved back to this area. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's the kind of is Appalachian culture so based on generational? Um, is the is the is the generational um, the roots? Is the roots such a part of the culture that you think it's maybe something you can't come into? You can only leave. I I have mixed emotions on this. Mm. I think that very much Appalachia is heritage. Mm, it, that's what I was it, trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is so much of who we are. Mm. It and family. Like I was talking about, how you know we're very tight knit, and you don't you don't have struggles alone because mm. you know we have these huge families and these you know adoptive families. Mm. I don't think that we aren't welcoming. Yes, right. I, I, I don't I don't think that's a thing, but I think it would be hard to truly experience Appalachia as what it is not being from here. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think you it would take a very long time 
to really experience our culture, to really get integrated because we are family systems. And so mm. you're not sitting at somebody's family Sunday supper mm. and you're not going fishing or hiking or whatever with with family and being taught these things it's not a true Appalachian experience Mm -hmm. yeah there's no big daddy to hand you a seed packet and tweezers yeah exactly exactly Mm -hmm. that big daddy (laughs) what did I say I said and you need that big daddy yeah to help guide you through yeah the Appalachian you know the traditional ways and yeah, I bet I say people write about Appalachia, and they they have these stereotypes, but they've only ever visited mm. very briefly, or even just maybe for a couple of years. You're not going to truly know what Appalachia is like until you've lived here your entire life, mm. and that's really sad because I wish more people could. Mm. But it mm. takes it really does. I, I think it takes a long time and I, it takes a long time to get integrated into mm-hmm. everything. I mean, you could, I guess you could marry him. <laughs> <laughs> Is your husband Appalachian? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was, he's from about um, 25 minutes away from where my family okay. is from. Which is not that far mm-hmm. as the crow flies, mm-hmm. but if you have mountains in between, mm-hmm. it takes you. Mm-hmm. As a teacher, do you feel like part of your job is um, to instill this Appalachian culture in your students? Do you think you're passing that love on to them, or is it just academics? Um, I. Has, uh, hospitality Mm. and being kind to one another and helping each other Mm. and not being judgmental Mm. or holding, you know, certain norms that maybe you shouldn't hold on to. But I think everybody's Appalachia is a little bit different. Everybody's culture and their heritage is a little bit different. I think, I hope that I teach them to love theirs. Mm, to be and to proud of it too, you know not to think mm. that there's there's is the best mm. Mm. we all mm. have very very different experiences and they have very different experiences mm. but I think the most important thing you can teach is for children to be kind to each other because mm-hmm. hopefully they grow up to be adults that are kind to each other and we need more of that mm. Mm. I can say amen to that for sure Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's definitely more important than the academic side of it. Mm-hmm. No matter what anybody tries to tell you, mm-hmm. that it, academics fall in comparison to kindness and understanding and empathy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. Okay, I've taken more than your hour. So anything <laughs> that's left on here, I think we've kind of touched on all the questions, even if we didn't get to all of them. But I do need to ask you about this recipe. Kilt lettuce. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everything just flowed so easily from one to the other. And I finally just said, we'll get to the recipe at the end. I can throw it into the intro so people know what we're going to talk about eventually, but it's okay. (laughs) Kilt, kilt lettuce. Now kilt, this is not a Scottish kilt, even though, like you said, it's said exactly like it. 
Uh huh. <laughs> what does it mean? It's it's said guilt, but yeah. <laughs> mm, but what what does it really mean? Kilt lettuce. Kilt. Kilt means killed. Killed. Like, mm-hmm. Killed. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Because you killed the lettuce with all the delicious, um, essentially fats that you put on top of it, right? <laughs> And, and it makes quite a, a bunch of noise. <laughs> it makes noise. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's so loud. You'll oh, see. <laughs> because you're, because you're, um, because you're sauteing it in this hot, hot oil. You've got this lettuce that is completely full of all that water mm. and it's crunchy and it's fabulous. And then you take what is traditionally used as salt bacon grease. Mm. You take this grease and you pour it over it and it screams and it pops and it crackles. And it is just this absolutely amazing experience. It's kind of like, you know, when you go to a hibachi grill or something. Oh, yes. All the, <laughs> all the stuff and it's kind of like, whoa. Yeah, that's it's like that with that. It's a full sensory. Say it again. You should do that at a table as like a, like a party thing. You know, yeah. you can <laughs> shock in all your your guests with your kilt lettuce. I love it. I love it. That's great. Yes. It's a full sensory experience. Mm-hmm. Mm, wonderful. So when I go to make this, is there a particular kind of lettuce that I should choose? You want a loose leaf blend of some sort okay. or like a, a good loose leaf that is crunchy and as you know, it can hold up to your pouring hot liquid over top of it. Mm. But you do not want iceberg. Do not disgrace the killed lettuce with iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> we, we use a variety called green ice. And that's okay. what we grow in our garden. And I don't think you're going to be able to find that like in a store. Mm-hmm. But just get a sturdy, loose leaf lettuce. Okay, and you a lot of it because it's like when you yes, or spinach or whatever, it goes down to nothing. Yes, you're need lots and lots of lettuce. Okay, that's right. So even though you're putting a lot of maybe not the healthiest stuff on top of it, you are really <laughs> maximizing your ingestion of greens because of how exactly. compact it becomes, right? Exactly. <laughs> mm, mm. And why? Health food. Say that again. We're going to call it a health food. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyone who listens to this podcast or follows me knows I do believe in um, moderation in all things. Mm-hmm. My mom, we were skinny, skinny, skinny kids. And my mom was a big believer in fats. Um, healthy fats. My mom fed us on a very low grocery budget. She fed us very healthfully. And she is a big believer like fat. This is right during the low fat craze in America, like that whole generation. And my mom never bought into it. She always just said, you cannot fill up. You cannot fill up without fat. Oh, you can't. And it's, it is very important. Healthy fats. Mm -hmm. When you're, you're getting them from sources too, that are local. Mm-hmm. And you know, they are, you know, you're buying from local farmers mm. or you have a local store that buys locally and you know that it's grass fed, it's had a good life. Mm-hmm. And you are eating things that your body is craving so much. Yeah. 
And I mean, we have family members that are old and they have lived their entire life on Lord. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. There's a big difference between, um, I think that high fat and high processed has become synonymous and they're, they're two very separate things. Highly processed are. foods are often high in fat, but high fat foods are not necessarily highly processed. And I think that's really the distinction between what tends to be more uh, helpful and what's not. Yes, we always try. And I mean, sometimes it's not, we don't have stores like other places do. We have to deal with our more local chains and things like Mm. that. But we try our hardest to do things that are locally done and that are as least processed as we can get them. And that's not always the case. And I enjoy some fried food. (laughs) (laughs) I do too. Everything in moderation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my th- my thing. My thoughts on it is mm-hmm. just you. C- you can eat things that are bad. It happens. <laughs> we can't shame ourselves for it. But just don't be doing that every day. Don't be doing it every week. That's you right. Know? That's right. That's right. And then when you're out in the garden and spending all of that time uh, exercising, moving your body in the sunshine, and eating most of that food, you're certainly filling yourself up with nutrients. Yes. Yeah. And uh, our area, you have to work hard. You have to work hard in the garden and you need something very feeling when you come in. And a lot mm. of our dishes that are, you know, traditional Appalachian dishes, they are hearty. Mm-hmm. And it's well, for that reason. Yes. I think you're raising a really good point, which is there's a difference between sitting all day or driving all day and then eating a high fat meal and being outside working. Um, all day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that also harkens back to our, our conversation about anxiety, but we won't go back down that road again, <laughs> again, either. <laughs> so it's a helpful life. It's, it's a difficult, but helpful life. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. You feel good. Hard work feels good. Mm-hmm. I'm lacking to go to bed after I have worked hard in the garden all day. It's just, that's that good sleep. You mm-hmm. know, you something with your day. I do know. I do know what you mean. So I'm going to close with one more question. If I can, do you mind if I ask one more question? And this is something I've wondered about um, how, like during the summer, it's, it's fine. You're working hard in the garden, but planting season and harvesting season really are during your busiest school year seasons. How do you do that? Okay. Well, I'm a preschool teacher. Okay. So being, they're going to bark. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, they're done. Being a preschool teacher, I only work until noon. Oh, good. So okay. Seven o'clock in the morning. And then I leave by noon. So I'm home to have my lunch mm-hmm. and then get some creativity or some gardening or whatever in. Okay. So this really is like a full-time job for you, the gardening and then showcasing what you do with all of that. I feel sorry for my husband who does work a full-time job (laughs) and has to dig holes. (laughs) That is hard. In the, in the setting sun, in the waning sun, he's cutting, digging holes for you. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, really, really more plants. <laughs> Are you serious? Oh, he loves you. He, he must. <laughs> aww, aww. 
Well, like I said, I feel like I don't know if we got to half the questions, but it doesn't matter. We did some extra ones. I could easily talk to you for the rest of the day. But out of respect to your time, I will stop now and just thank you. Thank you so much for everything that you did share and teach. And um, yeah, just letting the conversation kind of take a winding road and um, me ask the questions that came to mind. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed this immensely. I've enjoyed this too. It's just like what you said. It's like coffee with a friend. It was a very good experience. I am so glad you felt that way. That's wonderful. So just tell everyone where to find you and how to find you. You can find me on Instagram mm-hmm. with at Herbs, no spaces. I'm also on Facebook and you can visit my blog at www.mustloveherbs.com. That's perfect. And of course, I'll put all of that in the show notes. So one final question. Do you say pour the rain? Pour the rain. Yeah. It's pouring the rain. Pouring the rain. Yes. Oh, I have <laughs> such a good friend from West Virginia. And she would always say, Oh, it's pouring the rain. And even now to this day, I don't say the rain's pouring anymore. I say it's pouring the rain. <laughs> and sometimes I say it's coming a monsoon. <laughs> it's coming a monsoon. That's a new one. I love it. I love it. We'll have a wonderful day. Go enjoy the garden. Oh, thank you so much. I plan on it. Oh, wonderful. Thank you, Lauren. I'll be in touch. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much to Lauren for bringing your brightness and your expertise to the podcast. Thank you. If you have listened to this point, thank you so, so much. If I can just ask you one more time to please subscribe to the podcast in your player share this with a family or friend who would love it and rate or review, uh, leave a five-star rating or review. Any one of those three things will help me immensely. It means a lot to me personally. I would appreciate it. Uh, That is it. I hope you have a wonderful week, my friends.